Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anna Lindner, and today I'm talking to Dr. Garcia Peña, who is the author of a new 2022 book, Translating Blackness. We're going to be talking about Garcia Peña's book today and talking a little bit about her process for that book. First, an introduction of Dr. Dr. Garcia Pena herself. She's a professor of Latinx studies at Tufts University, the co-founder of Freedom University, Georgia, and the author of the forthcoming book, Translating Blackness, uh, which we'll be discussing today, Community as Rebellion, which was also published in 2022, and The Borders of Dominicanidad, published in 2016. She is the co-editor of the Texas University Press, Latinx, The Future Is Now, and the co-director of Archives of Justice. She writes and teaches in English and Spanish about the intersections of Blackness, colonialism, and migration, centering Black Latinx lives. Dr. Garcia-Pena, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, and the first question I want to ask too is, you know, obviously this book is a very personal book, uh, and you, you say that several times throughout, um, tell us a little bit about your story, where you grew up, um, where you received education and what kind of influenced the writing of this book in the first place. Sure. I, I was born in the Dominican Republic uh, in Santo Domingo, which is an island for those of, uh, for the listeners who don't know, um, an island in the Caribbean that shares a border with Haiti. And my family migrated to the United States, my parents, that is, and my siblings, when I was uh, younger. And I stayed behind with my older brother for a while and eventually brought to the U.S. by the age of 12. So I grew up between the Dominican Republic and the United States. We migrated to New Jersey, to Trenton, New Jersey, uh, so south, south central uh, Jersey, closer to Philly, which is kind of a, a different experience for, uh, for Dominicans. The majority of Dominicans uh, migrate to New York City um, or to the Boston area. So I was one of three Dominican families growing up in, in Trenton, New Jersey surrounded by a mostly Black uh, U.S. American uh, and Central American community. Um, And so my experience of being educated, uh, both in terms of uh, secondary and eventually college education uh, in the United States, created a lot of questions about my place in the world as a Dominican immigrant uh, of Afro descent, um, and about the the experiences of of migration that shape mine and my family's and my community lives, and I found 
mostly emptiness when I ask questions. Um, there were even in, in classes um, in, in high school that were taught by Latinx teachers. I had uh, I had a lot of Puerto Rican teachers, some Cuban teachers. The Dominican Republic was never really mentioned, um, not in our readings, not in our conversations, not in our classes that focused on the little classes that focus on Latin America, including uh, the Spanish class and AP Spanish class that I took in high school. Um, so I was really concerned with the absence, with the silences surrounding Dominicans. At, at a time, this is this is the mid-90s, at a time in, with, in which the Dominican population in the United States was the fastest growing ethnic minority. Um, so I went to college. I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey, which is the state university of, of, the, of New Jersey, um, in, in New Brunswick, which was a booming, growing, Dominic, which had a booming and growing Dominican population. Um, and again, I, I took courses both in the Spanish department and in the Latinx studies department, which at the time was, was called uh, Puerto Rican and Hispanic Caribbean studies. And Dominican histories, literature, culture were completely silenced and erased, even in, in courses that focus in the Caribbean. Um, so I left college feeling erased. Um, and uh, my, I, I major in journalism and, and, and in literature, and I, I thought I wanted, I knew I wanted to be some sort of writer. Um, I thought journalism would be a good way to approach my writing because I was interested in facts, not in fiction. I was interested in answering questions. And so at that point, um, I decided I was going to go back to the Dominican Republic and try um, my hand at being a journalist there. Um, and that return was uh, a rude awakening um, that showed me uh, a lot about the impossibility of returning that so many Caribbean writers and thinkers have been writing about, right? From Cesar to, to Stuart Hall to Silvio Torres-Sayan, uh, that once you migrate, you are forever a migrant, even if you quote unquote, return home. Um, and so I worked for Listin Diario for a little while, which is uh, at the time was uh, the, so the most important national newspaper. And it was really interesting how suspicious of my potential the editors were. And so they placed me in, in sort of fluff, writing about social uh, events and social activities, such as the uh, diplomats going into some sort of reception, really boring stuff that I had no interest in writing about. And then somehow I always found a way to flip it um, and talk about the politics and the racism that that was in those spaces. Um, and, you know, that experience of, of working in journalism and eventually working as a journalist for, for uh, the NGO world just left me with even more questions and, and made me realize that I, what I wanted to do uh, required more studying and more research. And so I went back to graduate school, um, originally with the idea of doing some sort of um, program that would marriage, if you will, um, journalism and literature, which were two passions of mine, uh, continue to be. And so I went back to Rutgers to work with Susana Rutger, who was a Venezuelan scholar 
um, whose work precisely focused on chronicles, uh, which are a type of sort of long uh, essay journalistic form, very common in Latin America. And um, uh, Susana died tragically my first semester in graduate school. She was uh, run over by a car. And it was really traumatic, and um, it left all of us, her students, um, wondering what to do next. Um, and that's when I kind of stumbled into Latinx studies. I had I, I, I known Latinx studies for a while. I had taken courses as an undergraduate student. Uh, but in the few years that I had been out of grad school, out of undergrad, it had kind of exploded as a national um, site of inquiry for questions about race and ethnicity and migration. Um, and so I started taking graduate courses in Latinx studies and realized that there, that, that was a, a path where I, where I fit, where my work and my questions fit. And so I went, I transferred out of Rutgers to a PhD program in American studies to work with um, Larry LaFontaine Stokes at Michigan. And, and that's sort of where my path, um, where I found a home, an intellectual home for the kinds of questions, the kinds of inquiries that I, that I had. And a lot of support from faculty and graduate students um, about my, I guess, promiscuity when it came to, to the way in which I approach research. Um, I had a very hard time staying in a lane, staying in a discipline. Um, I found, I find, and I still do, that what's most productive for me is to answer questions and answer the questions using the methods that best fit those questions rather than try to fit my work into a particular field, be it literature or be it history. And so that's how I um, came to to be an interdisciplinary scholar. That's how I came to approach the kind of methods that you see both in Borders of Dominicanidad and in Translating Blackness, where I'm engaging literature and history and archival documents and oral interviews to answer questions that I have, selfish questions, self-centered questions that I have really about Dominicans about Black Dominicanidades, about Black Latinidad in the world. Hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for that background information. And, and that's why your work is so, I would say, so compelling, so strong, is that your positionality is so wrapped up in it. Um. And the fact that you're an interdisciplinary scholar, I think that's why your work resonates so much with me because I've also jumped fields a lot and struggled to find where my home was and am now hopefully finding a way to kind of do it all um, and all of those fields that you mentioned, um, which is why this book is so, you know, kind of, it feels very rounded out to me. Um and it addresses a huge gap that is, you know, persisting in academia, which is the intersections of Latinidades, like you mentioned, and Blackness. And, you know, based on that background information you already gave, what's the starting point kind of from which you're theorizing and historicizing those identities? I think the first thing that we need to think about 
doing is erasing the and and or the or between black and Latinidad. There is a tendency, especially in the United States, to talk about black and Latinos as if those were two different categories, as if Latinx was not an ethnic and cultural identity rather than a race. And so I think the first the starting point is we should we need to think, rethink what and how we think about blackness and the way in which that term uh, in which uh, the way in which we employ the term within US uh, political, cultural and, and intellectual history erases other blackness that coexists with US with with what we understand as US American blackness. Um, and so beginning in that in that moment and doing the same with Latinidad, uh, rethinking the way in which we have imagined Latinx people uh, racially and culturally and linguistically, um, and remind, remembering the, the multiplicity of ethno-racial identities that coexist within that umbrella, highly problematic term that we that a lot of us have embraced. Um, so that that would be the starting point, and it's also a central point of the book, which I am proposing that we think about Black Latinidad, not as an ethno-racial category, but as a way of understanding, as an epistemology, as a way of thinking through questions of uh, intersectional questions of race, Blackness, coloniality, and migration, um, and how they appear and reappear from the 19th century to to our present moment. Yeah, that's always the conversation that has to be had um, when I'm doing my work on Africans and African descendants in Cuba, having to explain to people that there are Africans in Cuba and that there's just a complete lack of understanding in the United States about the fact that there are people from Africa in the, in the diaspora all across the entire world. Um, and based on the, what you just said, you know, you're conceptualizing this identity, this, these forms of identity or these epistemologies as you, you know, kind of correct the record um, by using the term hegemonic blackness, which, you know, first kind of strikes you as like, wait, why is blackness hegemonic? Um, And I kind of paused when I read that. But by the end of the book, you definitely had me convinced. Uh, so could you talk about a little about a bit a little bit about what that means and why that's so important to your thesis? So one of the things that I'm doing with this book, and I recognize that it's a risky thing to do, but I also wholeheartedly believe that it is a necessary thing to do, is to think about uh, to have uncomfortable conversations about blackness in academia, especially in you uh, as an European English dominant academia. Um, and and that requires us to recognize that uh, there is a way in which U.S. Blackness uh, dominates how we understand Blackness across the globe. How And that includes Africa, right? How we think about um, Blackness through um, historical moments in the United States. Uh, through cultural experiences in the United States, right? How for a Black person in Italy or Sweden to talk about the way in which they're experiencing uh, violence, state violence and racism, they have to use the hashtag Black Lives Matter in order to be heard 
and, and seen in the world. And, and I'm not saying this is always a negative. I'm not saying this is um, something that we need to uh, change. I'm saying it's something we need to recognize as we're thinking and through transnational and global blackness. Um, the kind, the way I, my, the way my work exists in the world is possible because of the work of black, black radical tradition in the United States. I owe that. I owe my work to, to the work of these scholars. Um, and so it's what I'm hoping to do in the book. It's kind of recognize the significance of U.S. Uh, intellectual history when thinking about blackness, but also invite us to think beyond, um, to to try and make different kinds of connections and to recognize the ways in which Anglo dominance and the dominance of U.S. blackness in the world and in particular in the academy can produce and reproduce erasure. And it certainly has done so for uh, black Latinidad. Right. And that's, that's so important. Um, you know, both for this book and also just the larger conversations that are happening right now, I think, um, you know, given the kind of position of English as the global language, you know, quote unquote, and then also the over-representation of the United States. Um, and relating to that, you talk, you use the theoretical concept of vaivin or coming and going, as you define it. Um, could you explain this a little bit more and how it relates to kind of your discussion of borders, of transnationality, of translating, um, which are all central concepts in the book? Vaivén is this great Spanish word that's used throughout the Caribbean. And in fact, Jorge Duani um, writes um, about the Puerto Rican vaivén, the coming and going when thinking about uh, Puerto Ricans as a nation on the move, as he calls it. Um, and my grandmother used to use this term a lot to, to talk about people who vacillated, people who are not sure, they're coming and going, siempre están en vaivén, they're always in, in a coming and going. I found the term to be really useful for thinking about the place of, of Black Latinx people in the world as people who are coming and going through multiple forms of colonialisms, multiple histories of colonialisms and colonialities but also multiple understandings of blackness. Um, this idea that, that, that we coexist in, in, in different frameworks, in different uh, ways of understanding belonging. Um, so the, the, the productivity of this coming and going is what is interesting to me, not only as a metaphor for, uh, for translating blackness, but also just as a way of really embracing the multiplicity uh, that uh, that is uh, the Black experience in the world. Um, so when I think about uh, Black Latinx migrants, for example, be it in the United States, in Europe, or even in other parts of Latin America, the way in which a Black Latino or Black Latina carries on their body the multiple colonial histories of Latin America, Europe, United States, and then as they move to a new site, they're confronting 
new forms of colonialisms and, and racisms and migration um, or anti-immigrant rather bias and how all of that coexists um, in their experiences and as they construct their own forms of identities and belonging is really interesting and I think it it can really help us understand where we are where we are in the world right now as, as a global uh, as global communities are formed, as people are connected. Right before we got online just now to talk, I responded to seven messages from the Dominican Republic um, because apparently I'm on the national newspaper today. And the way in which our presence stay in, ge- in geographies when we're gone uh, is radically different from how things were in the 19th century. And I think we need to start having more um, expansive conversations about what does that does to our understandings of blackness, to our understandings of uh, racial um, uh, ideologies and racial identities um, in construction, right? Yeah, and your book is is very kind of historically grounded. Um, it resonated with me just because I was trained as a historian and now I'm a media scholar, but I could see the very strong kind of focus on historical moments because you ground things so kind of clearly and specifically in the past. And then you also have this very strong kind of critical justice present and future oriented lens that you use. And I'm, you're probably aware, but there are a lot of, debates on presentism uh, that are happening in the discipline of history right now, which is, in other words, you know, how to have context, historical context kind of stand on its own and be in its own terms, but also acknowledging, you know, what's been happening in the world for the last 50 years and the way that scholarship has changed so much. So I'm wondering kind of how you how that's reflected in your work, how you kind of deal with that, because you do jump kind of between the past and the present um, a lot, but in a way that I personally think is very, very effective and it, it just works. So I was wondering if you could talk us through that a little bit. So there are all kinds of debates happening in academia, right? You, you just mentioned this debates in the field of history. We're also seeing words like decolonial popping up everywhere. But if we are really serious about quote-unquote decolonizing academia, we also have to get used to thinking about different ways of understanding the past, right? And different ways of understanding chronology. And so the way I approach my work is really thinking through um, Afro-Dominican ways of understanding time and thinking about time as overlapping. And through your Um, invited us to think about history that way as well, how the present is never, the past is never just the past, it's also the present. Um, And and so for me, uh, that sort of division, that line of past existing on its own comes from uh, immense white privilege. People who are not experiencing on their own bodies and on their own, on their everyday lives, the cost of that history in the present. So I cannot sit and look at the past, look at, at the reconstruction period as something that, that was done and done because it's still doing. It's still having an effect on the communities that I belong to. And 
the work that I do and the work that I want my work to do in the world is to precisely bring attention to the presence of the past so that we no longer continue to talk about the uh, post-colonial as if coloniality ended, as if we were not still uh, being dispossessed, killed, um, bordered by the same rules um, that led to the colonization of the Americas. So again, this is this is my own sort of political, uh, cultural uh, position on how I approach my work. My work has a purpose. I'm, I have no intention of being um, of being completely objective, as some people would like to claim it's possible to be. But rather, I have an opinion and a point of view from how I approach these questions and. People have um, the possibility of engaging and in different ways, and that's you know that's what books are for, right? Debating and thinking through them. Uh, but the I'm not a historian; I wasn't trained as a as a historian. But I found it helpful to think about historical moments and to kind of be able to answer present questions by looking at what has been the trajectory that brought us to where we are right now. And how can we put a stop to it? Because it's really not great for the majority of the world, the majority of the people of this world. Right. And those aren't the voices that are dominating the scholarly conversation even today in 2022, uh, unfortunately. Um, And, you know, even if you weren't necessarily grounded in history in kind of the way that um, someone who was strictly trained as a historian was, I feel like you do history very effectively um and when i read this i'm like oh this is this is a history piece (laughs) um even if it's not the primary discipline in which you're in which you are situated and that just speaks to the kind of the strength of your research i think um and speaking of that um this connects for me a lot of you know particularly black feminist, womanist, kind of grounded in that tradition, scholars are, like you're saying, very much eschewing ideas of objectivity, right? They, we know, they know that not only are they not objective, but scholarship is not objective. It, it's just, it just can't be, right? It's, it's from a certain standpoint, it's from a certain positionality, um, and have actually put forward the idea of Black futurities or Latinx Black futurities um, that are not necessarily in contradiction with, but maybe in tension with arguments of presentism. Um, And I think you really talk about this in specifics when you talk about Arthur Schomburg's radical hope as he said, which is a fraternity that's not bound to a nation state, but dares to kind of imagine itself beyond or through or without or, you know, whatever other word you want to use there, the nation state. Um, If you could expand a little bit on your discussion of Schomburg and futurism or future thinking studies. I began to think about Schomburg a really long time ago uh, when I was in, in graduate school and I took a class with Josiana Arroyo, who, of course, you know, writes about Schomburg and, and his uh, Masonic 
uh, influences. And I had never heard of Schomburg until then. And I was fascinated by him and have been, you know, admittedly obsessed with him for many, many years. And um, I never uh, published on Schomburg, even though I've written a lot and presented on him, um, in part because um, of just random backlog. There was a piece that was supposed to come out and then uh, the the, um, the issue was canceled. And in part because I um, he's such an expansive figure. There was so much that I wanted to do with him that it took me really a long time to be able to narrow down um, what I wanted to say about Shambor into into a short a shorter piece rather than a full book. And in the entering of my almost uh, almost 20 years writing about Schomburg and thinking about Schomburg, there's been an explosion uh, of his work, which makes me very happy. There's been uh, incredible work by Vanessa Valdez. There is a new um, anthology. There's a, a, an incredible piece by Francis Negro Montaner. So the conversations around Schomburg as a Latinx, as a Black Latino, uh, have um, have expanded since I began to think about him in, in, you know, in 2003. Um, and so what, what I think I um, bring to the conversation that, um, that it's different and that I think will be helpful to some of the readers is the way in which um, Schomburg existed way beyond his times um, as a, as a uh, scholar who theorized what I recognize today as ethnic studies. Uh, I think the way in which he thought about both blackness as a, a global category that, that went beyond the nation, that went across national lines, but also the way in which he thought about black studies as, as existing more than and above and expansive beyond the United States and in multiple linguistic registers. It's really interesting for where um, for the place that we find ourselves in as ethnic studies scholars right now and thinking about uh, blackness as central to ethnic studies, but also thinking about blackness and, and ethnicities as uh, related to the United States through colonial um, imposition, through colonialism, but beyond beyond the national the national borders. Um, and so I I find in in through this reading of Shambor, I find his work incredibly hopeful. Um, and I think he was very much a um, a hopeful thinker. He really found uh, in history and in in intellectual production the possibility of change. And I think I see my work in the same way, I hope that what we're doing right now, the kind of work that particularly Black um, women are doing in the U.S. Academy has the potential for change. Um, if I didn't truly believe that, I would probably do something else with my life. Uh, and so it's 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 hopeful. It's hopeful to to look at um, at this at these possibilities. But I also think it's important to think that this work is not new. And if we just open ourselves to reading uh, the past without, um, I guess, demanding that he uses the, the right terminologies of the present, we might actually see our lineage. And I think the lineage of Black Latinx studies 
can be really traced back to the work of Arthur Schomburg. Yeah, and that kind of willingness to read the past on its own terms, you know, terms in terms of terms and conditions, but also terms as in words, literal, actual language, specific words that were used um, without kind of losing the kind of strong justice uh, bent that I think that you do a really good job of capturing is a constant tension that I'm struggling with, definitely. Um, And that relates to something else that you kind of contend with, which is um, the question of the archive. So for your book, you did archival research. You also did, you know, interviews um, and a kind of wide range of analyses. And when you talk about the archive, you know, you talk about silences. You you, you use um, Michel Rouf-Truyot's work, um, who he's done a lot. He's an anthropologist. You use um, his work to talk about silences, distortions, and definitely the violence, the colonial violence that's done to certain subjects um, through the archive. Um could you talk to us a little bit about, about that and the observation you make near the end of the book that uh, archive and method are thus one? I start talking about archives, um, both in Borders and in Translating Blackness through Trio, uh, because Trio's work was um, essential for my own development as a scholar um, and as a, as a scholar who critiques archives. Um, and then throughout the book, I also recognize and um, engage with the growth of critical or critiques of the archive that we have seen in the scholarship of black women. So I write about Salia Harman's work, um, uh, Christina Sharp, it's like central to my theorizing uh, in, in, in at least two of the chapters, um, uh, Marisa Fuentes. Um, and the, the work that I, that I try to invite people to do is to rethink the way in which we think about method and methodology. This is something that I see and I talk about with my graduate students a lot. There is this uh, sort of separation of method and archive that we continue to insist on as we're training our students and as we're writing. And we envision method as something that comes from elsewhere and that we're kind of going to apply to the way in which we're going to read our archives. Um, And that doesn't always work very well (laughs) when uh, the archive is made up of uh, colonized, uh, racialized, minoritized people in the world. And, And so, my invitation to think as, uh, as the archive and the method as one is it's to break the hierarchy 
um, which I do in my work. So if you think about borders, the central theoretical term in, in borders is el nie, which comes out of a poet, Josefina Baez, not a philosopher or an anthropologist or whatnot. Um, the way in which we, we, we make these hierarchies and this division of who produces knowledge um, and who is the object of studies, it's not something I want to reproduce in my own work. I want the archive, I want the subjects, I want the, the stories that have been entrusted to me to be central to how I read them. And a lot of the time, the, the, the knowledge comes from, the knowledge and the method come directly from the quotes from people who share their stories with me. And so I am inviting scholars to rethink how they think about method. Um, and to rethink how they think about archives. Because there is no point in continuing to critique academia and continuing to demand decolonizing of the, the academy and of our knowledge if we continue to do it in the same way. If in order to, to, do, to talk about power, I always have to cite Foucault, then I'm not really decolonizing, am I? Am I saying that Dominicans don't know how to talk about power, that Black people don't know how to talk about power? So I think we need to really do what we're saying that we want to do if we want to change the way in which um, scholarship is and, and archives and methods and fields uh, of knowledge continue to be created and reproduced. Because so far, it's, it has not really worked out for, again, for the majority of the people of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, you know, if you talk about, uh, for example, the idea that, you know, I, I just think of citation practices and the kind of politics of citation in academia. And, you know, if I try to make an argument about power and I don't cite Foucault, um, you know, the, then that's a question of the canon. You know, should the should Foucault, um, you know, be cited at all or cited as kind of a point of departure or, you know, using completely different paradigms, um, which I think is a really important question. And I feel like when you follow scholars like Sharp, like Hartman, like Fuentes, um, they offer some answers there to a degree um so when you kind of concretely work with graduate students for example um what what do you tell them about you know the the canon and and citation and you know recognizing previous work i um don't know if this is kosher to say this on air but what i usually tell them is own your shit uh, there is a lot of um feeling like he, somebody else has to say it first in order for it to be valid. Uh, but some of the work that my graduate students are doing in theorizing, um, in thinking through, in contributing, it's really amazing and has the potential to revolutionize fields. But the confidence to do that is not there because we're telling people that they need to rely on Western um, and mostly European knowledge in order to be validated. Um, and so... Does that mean that we never cite Western 
knowledge? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you you engage it if it's helpful, if it's useful. But if it's not, it's important to understand that there are other ways of understanding the world, other ways of understanding time. We need to be asking questions about the big, we need to be asking those big questions that we've been asking for centuries from other perspectives. One of the examples I always give is the way in which I teach one of my courses on Caribbean uh, literature, in which I we talk about modernism and I invite the students to think about modernity, not from the French Revolution, but from the Haitian Revolution. How does that change your perspective of modernity? and of how we see the world if we examine it from this other historical moment, from this other way of understanding the world. How do we how do we see? What kinds of things do we see differently if we do that? I think we need to do more of that because asking the same questions from the same perspectives is not going to help us move the world in the right direction. It won't end racism. It won't end discrimination. It won't end exclusion because we're reproducing it in our own work. And I've been wrestling with those questions a lot recently is kind of ways of knowing epistemologies. Um, And one example you give is the idea of time, you know, kind of the Dominican conceptualization of time as overlapping rather than this kind of rigid chronology. Um, And I'm wondering kind of, how you think about knowledges. I, I think about like the binary between the, the thinking feeling uh, binary and what that kind of translates into in terms of like research knowledge or research that is produced. You know, obviously we don't even say scientific because we're not in the scientific kind of understanding of knowledge production anyway, but even getting farther away from that, have you come up with, come up against that where it's, um, there are hierarchies of, for example, rational thought versus either a feeling based or do you kind of question that binary of knowledges kind of fundamentally, if that makes sense? You know, when you're an ethnic studies scholar who happens to also be identified as belonging to that ethnic group, so in my case, as a as an Afro-Latina who writes about Afro-Latinidad, the assumption is that you're always looking at your own belly button, that the work that you're doing is uh, not serious enough because you don't have that distance. Uh, and that's a critique that all of us who are in the ethnic studies field and who are of an ethnic part of an ethnic minority group are very familiar with. Um, and I, I decided a long time ago that that is um, not where I'm going to put my energy. I don't feel like I need to justify the work that I do. Um, when, I, um, when I was in my tenure at Harvard, the one justification that I've been able to get from the administration after undergoing a um, a legal process is that my work was, quote unquote, too narrow because I was always focusing on Black Latinx people who apparently are perceived as a very small niche. Um, And I found uh, the explanation not only incredibly ridiculous and stupid, 
considering that I was in a, in a department that is known for people focusing on one author. So that people, the person who got tenure before me in the department has written two books about Borges, uh, an Argentine writer. So the way in which the work we do through the lens that we do is always perceived as less important is exactly why we need ethnic studies. Is exactly why we continue to need this kind of work. And so is, is my work, am I part of my work and my work is part of me? Yes. Absolutely. But that does not make it less objective. It makes it more essential and more more important Um, because I am very much writing um, from my own perspective and my experience is very valid and it colors how I read these histories. And that is exactly what is needed. We have too many uh, books about Black, Latinx, and other ethnic minorities written from the perspective of white people who would never know what it's like to live in this skin. Do we really need to continue to read that work when there are some of us that are actually more qualified to write about it because we know what it feels like to be discriminated as a Black Latina in the United States? I am coming with important tacit knowledge about the stuff that I'm writing about because I understand it on my own skin. So when I am meeting a subject, when I'm meeting a person and I'm asking them, what does it feel like to be a Black Latina living in Italy? And she starts crying. I'm going to cry too because I know exactly what that means and I feel it too. And that's knowledge. That's a very important knowledge that I want to make sure I include in my writing. Why would I omit that? Why would I keep that from the story if it's so integral to it? Hmm. And we're lucky that, you know, we have people like Sharp and, um, you know, other scholars who are writing from that intimate place that I feel like has inspired you and set the stage for your work so well that you're able to do that in this book in a, in a very compelling way and in a very kind of, for me, felt like very grounded and very, you know, personal, intimate, but, and not but, but, and so like, like you say, expansive. And so, you know, translates (laughs) to use your term to so many different um, arenas. And with that in mind, um, you know, I know that you're still working on the Dominican Republic, what, what is your current work? Kind of what's the direction that you're taking? What are you working on? What are you thinking of working on uh, in the next couple of years here? Thank you for that. Um, I want to say again how um, indebted, like I said earlier in the interview, I, my work wouldn't exist without the Black radical tradition and in particular Black women's writing. Um, I am beginning to write about, well, I'm writing a book about global blackness. Um, and in many ways, what's, what happens to me in the writing process, because I'm so fucking slow when I write, and it takes me like a decade to produce a book, it, it's almost as if the next book is brewing as I'm writing one. So while I was writing Borders, 
I was already researching for Translating Blackness, which I started to research in 2013, three years before Borders came out. And there is a moment at the end of Borders where like the new book is started to bleed <laughs> into it. Um, and I knew that it was time to stop. Um, and so this this next project uh, in some ways started to bleed into translating blackness as well. And you know, I started to think about it in 2020 as the explosion of, of global protesting after the murder of George Floyd um, were unprecedented, right? We, we saw how there are protests in Japan and in Europe and all in Africa and all over the world in places we don't tend to associate as locations of anti-blackness, at least not in the traditional sense of how we have come to understand anti-blackness in the world. Um, and we saw those statues being torn in you know places like Italy and Chile and all over the world, right? And so this is happening as I am deep into revisions of a book in which I shown evidence of the growth of uh, of anti-blackness and in particular the way in which blackness and immigration are intersecting outside of the United States um, to reproduce violence against people. Um, and so I want to write about that. <laughs> I want to write about the ways in which um, global anti-blackness is growing um, I want to, I'm looking at multiple cases um, across the globe. So I'm looking at Chile. I'm looking at Sweden. I will always be looking at the Dominican Republic and their anti-Haitianism in all my work, I think, until I retire. Um, and uh, Japan. And I'm not, I'm not sure where else. Um, so I'm trying to look at the ways in which um, anti-blackness and xenophobia are shaping local legislation uh, in, in, in places that we didn't, 20 years ago, we didn't even used to think about um, as locations of, of anti-Black violence like Chile. Um, that's, uh, that's where I am. It's still in diapers, so I'm not sure what the threat will be, but for now I'm just listening and reading a lot and going to archives again, so it's Great. fun. Yeah. Um... Well, definitely looking forward to that book um, when it comes out eventually, you know, even if it takes you another decade, um, I'll, I'll still be interested in this. Um, and I know our readers will be too. Sadly, um, it'll be relevant, sadly. Sadly, yeah. <laughs> um, if the past is anything to show for the current tra- trajectories we're experiencing. Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Garcia Pena, for coming on today and talking about this very kind of prescient and um, important work that you're doing and um, also how that's connecting to your personal story. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Yeah. Thanks so much.